The new Voyager mission project scientist is an old friend, and you'll hear from her this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Linda Spilker of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab has been named only the second project scientist in the more than half-century history of Voyager. Our most frequent guest arrives to tell us about how honored she is to succeed the great Ed Stone and what those distant twin spacecraft are up to in interstellar space. Before we check in with Linda, you'll want to hear our own Bruce Betts prepare us for the end of the Planetary Society's fabulously successful LightSail 2 mission. It could happen any moment now as the little CubeSat with the big wings re-enters Earth's atmosphere. The latest edition of our free weekly newsletter, The Downlink, is waiting for you at planetary.org downlink. But the real elephant in the solar system this week is the Artemis 1 mission. I'm hitting this week's planetary radio deadline just a couple of hours before NASA attempts again to launch that giant space launch system rocket toward the moon. In addition to the uncrewed Orion capsule, it carries a herd of CubeSats, including the near-Earth asteroid Ornea Scout solar sail that will be released shortly after liftoff. I'm sorry I'm not at the Cape this time for what should be a spectacular night launch, if it happens. My colleague Jason Davis has updated his comprehensive Artemis One launch guide. You'll find it at planetary.org. Godspeed, Artemis. What a long road it was to LightSail 2. I was around for the Planetary Society's attempt to become the first to fly a solar sail. That was our Cosmos 1 back in 2005. That big spacecraft plunged into the sea when its Russian booster failed. We came back 10 years later with a radically different approach, a CubeSat called LightSail, that has famously been described as being the size of a loaf of bread. The brief test mission of LightSail 1 was difficult, but ultimately successful in showing that we were on the right path. Finally, in 2019, LightSail 2 rocketed into mid-Earth orbit atop a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. It spread its sails a few weeks later, becoming the first solar sail to maintain and raise its orbit, propelled by nothing but the light of the sun. Now, nearly three and a half years later, long after anyone thought it would still be sailing, our little spacecraft, paid for by 50,000 individual donors, is nearing the end. My WhatsApp colleague Bruce Betts leads the LightSail program. Hey, Chief Scientist and LightSail program manager, you look kind of tired. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> I feel kind of tired. That would be the reason. Because our spacecraft, it's burning up in the atmosphere really in the next few days. And it's yeah. been kind of crazy monitoring that and reporting out on it. And uh, the, the weeping keeps me awake as well. <laughs> I'm glad you haven't lost your sense of humor. This is a big deal. Three and a half years, 18,000 orbits, 8 million kilometers, 5 million miles. That's right out of the first sentence of your new article. At planetary.org, LightSail 2 is about to burn up, and so I refer people there if you want more detail. But but give it to us in a nutshell, which actually is one of your subheadings. <laughs> well, that was actually reviewing the whole mission in a nutshell. Here, I will give you the burn up in a nutshell. 
basically, we always knew that this was going to be the end of the mission. We weren't launched high enough with uh, efficient enough or large enough sail to escape the Earth and keep going higher or even stay where we were. There's enough atmosphere. We think of space as being, you know, a vacuum, but it's not. Even 700 kilometers up, there are enough atoms, ions that you run into at 30,000 kilometers per hour that uh, it slows you down. And so we gradually, we fought it with solar sailing for a while, but then we dropped lower and then solar activity kicked up and that inflated the atmosphere and there was more atmosphere. So we dropped lower and it's a quite the snowball effect right at the, I mean, we're seeing huge drops now uh, of 20 kilometers a day, whereas usually we were in the tens of meters per day a while ago. But we're seeing these huge drops because as you get lower in the atmosphere, of course, it's it it drags more and then that drags you down faster and you're in denser atmosphere and et cetera, et cetera. So we are talking on the 15th. People aren't going to hear this until at the earliest, the morning of Wednesday, the 16th. Is this so imminent that, I mean, it could have already happened by the time this show is published? It could, but I, I don't think so. But then, uh, I'm not an expert in deorbiting, although I've been learning a lot lately. Um, <laughs> but it could within like the same day that this comes out. Uh, the, the different predictions that are out there from others and from our own predictions kind of say the 16th or the 17th are kind of most probable, which is really impressive considering we're still at over 350 kilometers up and uh, like space stations at 400 kilometers, but but we have a giant area and a little tiny mass, and they've got a giant area but a really big mass, so they uh, they don't uh, get as affected by drag. But even they have to boost every few weeks to stay in orbit. I'm still hoping, hoping that we get at least some thumbnails of additional pictures mm. down. We're running out of time, and it's getting trickier to track because the orbit's changing so fast that it's even harder to communicate than usual, which is usually fairly hard. Yeah, but you have gotten some really beautiful shots just in the last few days. Uh, Lightsail's been able to send down, and I hope people will uh, will take a look at those. Yeah, and we've got a, a new one up in the article and also on the pictures page of Lightsail. Is it possible, I mean, you mentioned this in your article, that uh, there might not be a gap in having a solar sail mission underway? Yeah, it's uh, quite the intriguing coincidence that we've been there three and a half years, and NIA Scout, NASA's uh, asteroid exploring solar sail mission that will take the next steps out with solar sailing, it's we're coming down and they're going up. And so, uh, as you've, we've discussed various times, there's trying to launch on SLS the, as part of Artemis One, and when they deploy, they will have uh, a little bit of overlap. We'll see. They're trying to launch tonight again, the night of the 15th to the 16th, and we're not trying, but are succeeding in coming down in the next few days. <laughs> so, we'll we'll pass the torch, so to speak, as we're burning up in a fireball. <laughs> Hang in there, guy. Les Johnson, by the way, the leader of the NIA Scout mission, will uh, be back on the show very soon. Yeah, that's great. We will continue to track this. Uh, again, your article is at planetary.org. Easy to find, and uh, that's where you can also track uh, 
almost in real time, right? The, the actual numbers and see the graphs as a light sail proceeds toward its impending doom. Honorable doom. Honorable doom. Oh, it is. It's lasted much longer than we had, uh, we had hoped. Hey, Matt. Hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. <laughs> he will be back because uh, he's not only the program manager for the Light Sail Project, he is our Light Sail program. He is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. And that means he's, he's going to join us in a few minutes after we hear from Linda Spilker. Bruce will be back for What's Up. All of my Light Sail 2 conversation with Bruce Betts can be heard at planetary.org slash radio. And in the podcast, you'll also catch Sarah Alamed's introduction to the Planetary Society's brand new program for kids called the Planetary Academy. Sarah will take over as host of this show on January 4, 2023. Linda Spilker was the deputy project scientist for the Cassini-Huygens mission when we first talked back in 2005. I've lost track of how many times she has returned since then. Her most recent appearance was during my coverage of the Voyager mission's 45th anniversary celebration. She has even more recently taken on the top science job for that mission with twin spacecraft that crossed into the space between the stars several years ago. Linda Spilker, welcome back to Planetary Radio, our most frequent guest here for one more visit, at least while I'm the host. And who knows, I hope we'll have more chances to talk in the future. Mostly, it's it's good to see you again. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you. Uh, someone needs to update your JPL bio page. It leaves off with Cassini Project Scientist 2010 to the present, which is fine. You got a new job. What does it feel like to be the Voyager Project Scientist? It's a tremendous opportunity. I'm, I'm really grateful and happy to have it. Uh, Ed Stone retired, and I was asked to step in for him. Of course, you know, Ed Stone is truly the heart and soul of Voyager and will continue to be so. He's following the Voyager science. And so I feel as though I'm just following in his footsteps, following that dream for Voyager, going into interstellar space. And we're just going to go as far as we can go. As long as those two spacecraft stay healthy and keep working, we're going to keep exploring. What is it? Uh, second star on the right and straight on toward morning. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. You know, we had that event that we covered here on Planetary Radio, that wonderful anniversary event. And it was so delightful. I mean, you had a great turnout, first of all. So many great people uh, who have served the mission over the years. At that point, you had already come back as deputy project scientist, of course. And Ed was there as well. And it was just delightful that after all these years, he was still project scientist and able to participate in that celebration. It was very gratifying. Yes, it was wonderful just to see all of the people, many of whom I hadn't seen probably for a decade or more, come back for Voyager's 45th anniversary. And already we're thinking ahead to what the 50th anniversary might be like. That's great. There is another connection that I read about, uh, which I, I hope you can say something about. It's the person that you are training as uh, to take on the job of deputy project scientist, the one that you just moved up from. And she has a connection to Ed. That's right. That's right. Her name is Jamie Rankin. Uh, she's currently at Princeton University, and she was Ed Stone's last graduate student. Ah. In fact, she started with him in 2012, just after Voyager 1 had crossed into interstellar space. And then she graduated in 2018, and she worked with the Cosmic Ray team uh, analyzing their data, and that was part of her thesis. So I'm very excited. I'd gotten to know her 
uh, earlier on in the mission, and I'm very excited to be able to train her and have her carry Voyager forward because, you know, everything goes well. It could be the 2030s until ah. we you know, keep sending back those last data. Okay, so that's my next question. As I asked Ed every time he was on, what's the health of the spacecraft? How much more juice are we going to get out of those RTGs? Well, right now, Matt, both spacecraft continue to operate successfully, and they're sending back data just about every day on interstellar space. Both are now flying in the local interstellar medium. Uh, Voyager 1 headed north of the ecliptic, Voyager 2 headed south, based on the, the little nudges they got with their last flybys of the planets. Voyager 1 is currently at 158 AU, if you can imagine. you know the, That's the distance between the Earth and the Sun, so far surpassing its... Uh, original intention, you know, to fly by Neptune, but much, much further than that. And Voyager 2 is at 132 AU, and they're, each one is going a little over, Voyager 2 is going about 3.1 AU per year, Voyager 1 about 3.6, and so they're just gradually getting further and further away from the sun. In fact, it, it takes about 22 hours one way to communicate with Voyager for the data to come back from Voyager to these deep space network stations to the Earth. And if you think about that, that's almost a light day, 22 hours for the data to come back. And so then it's another 22 hours for a signal to travel from Earth back to Voyager. So you have to be patient to communicate <laughs> with Voyager these days. It, it just takes a little bit of time. Well, recently, Voyager 1 had some trouble with its attitude control system. And what happened is the attitude control system information suddenly became garbled. The engineering information that tells us the status of that data just we just couldn't make sense of it. But the spacecraft continued to operate normally and send back science data as though nothing were wrong. We just couldn't communicate with it or understand what it was telling us. And through some very careful detective work, we figured out that what had happened is, for a reason we don't know why it happened, it switched over to the backup flight data system computer, which we knew was not working correctly. And so when we commanded it back, to the system that was working, all of a sudden, all of the attitude control data suddenly cleared up and, it, and the problem was solved. But we're still trying to figure out why it happened. Uh, clearly, we don't want that to happen again or something else to happen. But right now, both spacecraft are operating and successfully returning data. There are so many, I don't want to call them miracles because this is the work of humanity, uh, but it is near miraculous to think of what is happening here. It also strikes me that this ought to be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most distant repair job ever accomplished. <laughs> That's absolutely true, Matt. The, the most distant spacecraft and the most distant, very careful understanding of what's wrong and be able to fix it. Uh, with the distances we're at. And if you think about it, those Voyager computers are tiny by comparison to the computers that now fly on the spacecraft or even have in your iPhone. Ah, that's what, yeah, I'm sure my iPhone is vastly smarter than, uh, than either of the Voyager spacecraft, but much less adventurous. I, I go back to those RTGs, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators, gradually ticking down as they work their way through multiple half-lives. Uh, you talked about into the 2030s, I know you're having to turn stuff off as we lose power. How much longer? What are the estimates? How much longer can we keep things going? Well, it turns out, Matt, that each Voyager is losing about four watts of power per year. And so we've been slowly turning off the redundant systems. And even in the last couple of years, 
turned off the heaters to the particle instruments. They're on the boom that holds the scan platform about halfway out. And so one by one, we've turned off the heaters on those instruments, and they dropped some 60 or 70 degrees <laughs> in temperature, and yet all of them continued to work. Yeah, I'm laughing because I remember you saying this, I think, when we last talked at that celebration, and how <laughs> amazed everybody was. After all these years, they're working at temperatures far below what they were designed for. Absolutely. And it's, in fact, in some ways, uh, the seal-to-noise has gotten better. Some of these detectors <laughs> like being colder. Uh -huh. And so it's been some recalibration effort. But uh, every single one of them, even one of them, the low-energy charged particle instrument, has a little stepper motor that steps it through eight different quadrants to look in different directions. And that little stepper motor is happily still stepping and still sending back data uh, on all of its channels. So it's, it, it really is an amazing story. I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about here. Moving parts, a tiny electric motor working in space, radiation, cold, vacuum for over 45 years. It, it is incredible. And that, that's true across the whole spacecraft, that those systems all keep working. And, and I know in the era that Voyager was built, and the engineers were, were so proud of what they were doing, and they knew it had to last out to Neptune for Voyager 2. And so if they had a chance to put in a slightly better part or whatever, they would do that. And so just very carefully built up the, the best spacecraft they could. The other at least semi-miracle that I want to bring up here is the one I, I, we've probably talked about in every conversation that has mentioned Voyager on this program for 20 years. And that is what you said, the Deep Space Network, still talking to these spacecraft on a regular basis, trying to pick out that tiny stream of photons coming from so far away with, with those dishes here on Earth. I mean, hats off to the DSN. Absolutely, Matt. Absolutely. At, a, at 160 bits per second, the, the data are not coming back very quickly. Although on Voyager 1, we are still using the tape recorder. Uh. The tape is still moving across the heads. We record data from the plasma wave spectrometer, you know, just a frame or two a week, and then play back those data. Linda, you, are, you stay one step ahead of me. I wanted to go next to what are we continuing to learn from the Voyagers that are telling us about this region of interstellar space that we've never visited before. Well, when we get out uh, now past the heliopause, we can suddenly start to test some of the ideas and theories we had about interstellar space. That's the boundary where the sun's influence stops. It's basically a balance between the sun, the solar wind pushing outward and interstellar space. And at that boundary, once we crossed it, we're making measurements. And I think one of the, the biggest surprises is that the sun's influence continues out past that boundary. Uh, if there's a big event, a coronal mass ejection, something on the sun, we actually are seeing shocks and pressure ramps that are propagating out quite some distance into interstellar space. And of course, there's a lot of questions about the shape of the heliosphere. Is it like a giant bubble? Does it look more like a comet with a long tail? Is it maybe, as some people think, twisted like a croissant huh. with two lobes to it? There are lots of ideas. And as the Voyager mission continues, we hope to be able to provide more information to the modelers to help better understand the actual shape of the heliosphere. Star Trek, the motion picture, came out in 1979. I got to think that a bunch of you went to see the Star Trek movie, and there at the core, the center of the premise of that movie was something called V'ger. 
<laughs> what do you remember? What was the reaction to that? Oh, I absolutely remember that, Matt. It was so exciting. I had started on Voyager in 1977. I was fortunate enough to be actually at the pad, watch the launch. And so, yes, we went to see the movie. And in fact, what had happened is several of the friends I went with had seen the movie already. And so they knew what was coming. But I didn't. I didn't figure out that V'ger meant Voyager. And so we, we get to the end of the movie, and here they are, you know, walking down, and, and I'm all, it's Voyager, it's Voyager. And everybody was looking at me <laughs> and not, looking at the mo- not watching the movie. And it was just so wonderful to think that uh, there on Star Trek, you know, one of my favorite shows growing up would watch it all the time. There was Voyager 6 completing its mission in a very amazing way, you know, collecting all of this data and all of this information. So that was really a fun, really, really a fun time. Or the, another one uh, with Mimas, with the big crater on its surface, looking so much like the Death, Death Star, Star. <laughs> on Star Wars and making that comparison and just really that, really the fun times on Voyager for all of those planetary flybys. So happy to have part of that, yeah. Linda, it has always been, and I hope will continue to be, uh, one of the, my favorite experiences doing this show to be able to talk to you as we have watched these missions develop over a couple of decades. Um, let's keep it up. Oh, absolutely, Matt. Let's stay in touch and just want to congratulate you on your retirement and a, a chance to do what you love the most and, and continue on and keeping and learning and keeping in touch with uh, the, the missions and the projects as well. So congratulations on your retirement. Thank you so much, Linda. And uh, I will say to you, it means more for somebody working on Voyager than it does for most people. Ad Astra to the stars. Yes, absolutely. Agree. My complete conversation with Voyager project scientist Linda Spilker covered far more than you've just heard. It's at planetary.org slash radio and in this week's podcast. I'll be back with Bruce after these messages. This is Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. As promised at the opening of today's show, we are back with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Bruce Betts. It hasn't come down in the last uh, 20 minutes, has it, since we recorded that first segment? Oh, shoot. I didn't check. Yeah, don't look. Don't look. I don't want you to get more depressed. What's up other than light sail too, Bruce? <sighs> so anyway, uh, we've got Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky up after after sunset. Uh, hanging out in the east or south, hanging out high overhead if you're in the southern hemisphere. Jupiter looking super bright, brighter than the brightest star, and Saturn looking kind of yellowish. But we've got reddish Mars 
it's just spectacular. It's really approaching the brightness of Jupiter. It'll keep growing in brightness until its uh, closest approach to Earth in their orbits in early December. And right now, if you look at it, it's hanging out between the horns, the tips of the horns of Taurus. Ooh, be careful, Mars. <laughs> On to this week in space history. It was this week in uh, 1969 that Apollo 12 successfully landed humans on the moon for the second time. On to <sighs> random space fact. All right. We'll take that for this week. We'll give you a bye. Okay. Thank you. So Light Sail 2 will have been in space for almost three and a half years. Light Sail 1, the test mission which never attempted to solar sail and was designed to test all of our components and deployment uh, was a launch to a much lower orbit. It was in space for about 25 days. And once they deployed the sail, they only were in space for another roughly seven days because again, the, the high drag of having that sail out and the fact that they were in a much, much lower, they were in a similar orbit to where we have been the last few days. We go on to the trivia question. I ask what former JPL director or directors have won the U.S. National Medal of Science? How do we do, Matt? This is interesting. There were a lot of people who only came up with one person. I don't know if anybody came up with two, but apparently there were three. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> As we learn in this poem from Gene Lewin in Washington, the first director so selected von Karman was his name. His leadership in aeronautics would garner him acclaim. In the discipline engineering recognized by Gerald Ford, presented to William Pickering, the second director to win this award, and third for physical sciences, Edward Stone, selected here, directing the Voyager mission out beyond the heliosphere. <laughs> That's very nice. Well done. Here's our winner. If I'm right, Ed Lupin in California. This is his first win. Congratulations, wow. Edward. We're going to send you, Edward, a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid. Congratulations once again. Congratulations. So the question for you, in two weeks, when we go over this answer, it will be our 20th anniversary planetary radio show. Did you know that, Matt? Is it something special? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to make it special. So apparently, apparently, uh, if uh, for uh, marriages, there's, you know, how they've got all the silly paper, leather, whatever gifts you're supposed to give different anniversaries. Well, 20th anniversary traditional is China. No offense, but I would not give you China. The question for you out there is what would be an appropriate gift for a 20th anniversary of planetary radio? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. We will judge it on however we judge it. Good luck, good hunting, and have fun. You have until Wednesday, November 23, at 8 a.m. in the morning to get us this answer. And uh, tell us what you think uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, Planetary Radio should be celebrated with. Were you to give me a gift? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the gift should go yeah. to the I mean, I'm not going to give you a gift anyway, so it's really all hypothetical. I'm sure you're not giving me a gift. I might have a gift for you on the 23rd. I actually have something in mind. So uh, just, oh, geez. Just, just now you'll have to stay in suspense. Um, well, I have to figure out something. I've got... Um, 
Here's a here's an old can. Do you want that? Yeah, no, no, no. Give it some more thought. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there. Uh, look up in the night sky and think about fireballs, preferably in Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you and good night. Or Fireball XL5, which was my fave. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week for What's Up. How could I forget to announce the new contest prize? It's a stunning Voyager t-shirt from our friends at ChopShopStore.com. You'll love it. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members like me. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.